Hello and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, Vanity Fair, and most recently, The New York Times. You may be here after reading a piece that I wrote about Alcott for the New York Times opinion page on December 24th. You may also be here because of some of the Fox News coverage (laughs) of that article. The headline was Podcaster Mocked. I am that podcaster, so welcome to the show, everyone. I'm here today with my very special guest, Cameron Garrett. Cameron is a novelist who lives in New York City. She's written several acclaimed novels, including Full Disclosure, Off the Record, and Friday I'm in Love, which just dropped on January 10th. Is that right? Yes. So it's out now. As you're listening to this, take your headphones out of your ears, go to the nearest bookstore, buy it now, and then come back here and listen to this. Okay. In 2019, Cameron was named one of Teen Vogue's 21 Under 21 and one of Glamour's College Women of the Year, and she recently graduated from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. Cameron, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am so good. We are recording this on New Year's Eve, so there's a lot of fun waiting for the new year energy. I've got resolutions all set up. Yeah, and you're a bookseller, so you are bookselling all day and now you're here. It's lovely to have you. I keep forgetting like it's a podcast and I have to talk. I'm like nodding at everything. (laughs) But yeah, it's so great to be here. I'm so excited. So I have a question for you. Since you recently graduated from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts, was Taylor Swift your valedictorian? She was. So I just have to ask, as a moderate Swifty, how was that? It was really interesting because there were some people, well, first of all, because it's such a big school, you only get a certain amount of tickets. And there are people like bartering tickets with Swifties. People were like, I will pay you $500. I will pay you $1,000. Just give me one of your tickets. And this is only college graduation I've ever had, but it was hard to get into. And all the students sit by school and then the family sit on the other side of the stadium. And while she was speaking, she was like alluding to trauma and difficult things she's gone through. My mom is texting me like, is she talking about Kanye? What is she referring to? What's going on? (laughs) I don't know these references. It's really interesting because they played her song. She referenced her songs and people were cheering and were really excited. And she really gave cool older sister vibes. And I would be really into it until she would say something about famous boyfriends. And I was like, oh, that's not relatable. (laughs) (laughs) I really felt myself believing Taylor Swift and I are the same. And then she would mention her parents. And I was like, oh, wait, they have money. Never mind. <laughs> I don't think she gave a bad speech. I think it was pretty good. Yeah, I watched a live stream or something that had been recorded afterward. I thought she comported herself beautifully. I can see how the stuff about celebrity boyfriends might be unrelatable, even though in your second book, that is very much a like celebrity yeah. boyfriend <laughs> fantasy. For anyone who hasn't read it, I'm a big fan of this book, Off the Record, which was Cameron's second book. And it was about a, a young reporter who uncovers a Me Too story while doing a profile of an upcoming film. And she falls in love with a very handsome young French actor named Marius Calmet. Yeah. And he's not the one being meets, he's not the one being exposed. Yeah, <laughs> that no, feels important not, to say. no, that's not him. <laughs> no. There's just a bad older dude on set. But yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was interesting because it made me I think because most of us there were or not most of us, but a lot of us there were like in art school. And mm-hmm. all of the stuff she said felt really applicable to us. But it was also like also widely. I think I'm just bringing up because it's so interesting to me that it felt very relatable and universal. And then 
there'd be some moments where I was like, wait, we're not the same. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Your dad's a hedge fund manager. They showed the camera of her walking and there were like security guards surrounding her as she walked to the podium. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Wow. This didn't happen with the other doctorate, the honorary. (laughs) (laughs) Other people gave speeches that day? Yeah. Like we had, because she wasn't the only one who got the honorary doctorate. Oh, right. So it was this man who came from Puerto Rico and was this really big impact on our local ecologists. Mm-hmm. And it felt bad because other people were talking and you could tell, especially where I was sitting, people were not paying attention until Taylor's filled. But I thought it was a good graduation ceremony. And I did think I like Taylor's music, but she like annoys me personally. And I wasn't irritated by the speech, you know, like I was actually mm-hmm. like into it. And a lot of my classmates were into it that I didn't expect. So she was like, I was only chosen because my song is 22 and you guys, the year, the class of 2022. <laughs> and I was like, it's perfect. It's perfect branding. It I complain. <laughs> <laughs> I love the detail of your mom. She's talking about Kanye. Like, <laughs> My mom was like, I have no favorite reference for anything. Not even like big things, but she would just be right. like, my parents sacrificed so much that I could give you my career. My mom was like, what does that mean? Where are her parents? <laughs> it was, Shush, just listen. Yeah. Oh, that's so fun. Well, I'm glad we got that Taylor Swift graduation speech recap out of the way. Thank you, Cameron. And this is on the last day of 22 that when we're recording this, it makes sense to pay homage, but let's get into it. I mean, what is your relationship to Little Women? Yeah. So I actually never read the books until recently or the book. It was so interesting when the 2019 Little Woman came out because everyone was tweeting about it and so many people were like, you're an Amy or a Meg or, and I was like, I've never had this sort of cultural role. Like I've never heard people talk about little women when I was a kid. My classmates weren't talking about little women. It wasn't this big thing the way it seemed to be for so many people. And I felt very lost. I was very confused and I thought it was a niche, but I don't think it is. I think it was a very big deal. So I was really confused and I tried to read it and I was bored and then I saw the movie and this happened to me with Pride and Prejudice too, where I was like, I don't like this. And then I saw an adaptation and then I was like, wait, no, I want to read this. But I saw the Greta Gerwig adaptation and then I saw the Jillian Armstrong. And then I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And that's sort of what brought me into it. Yeah. And so I want to touch on that because you mentioned Greta Gerwig and Jillian Armstrong. You're a filmmaker as well as an author. So what kind of insights do you get from their directing those movies? Yeah. So one of the really cool things was I knew about, or well, I was more attached to Jillian Armstrong than Greta Gerwig because Jillian Armstrong made this classic sort of very important film called My Brilliant Career in Australia. And she was one of the first female filmmakers to direct a feature in 30 years or something. And she was very young when she made it. She was like 28. And that was another adaptation. This is her first film, but it's an adaptation of a book from the 1800s by a woman. So it has similarities to Little Women that way. And it's also the main character has similarities to Joe and that she wants to be a writer very much. And it's not really accepted or expected of her. And I really, really loved that movie. And so to see her make Little Women maybe 20 years later was also really interesting because I don't know how to articulate this. I can sometimes tell when Australia's, <laughs> Australia's, when directors are Australian and I don't know how to articulate it. There's something sort of rough and not in a bad way, but something okay. sort of unpolished 
about a lot of times about the directing. I just think of Peter Wheel or Peter Weir, I'm sorry, and Jillian Armstrong. And her little women felt less glossy than Greta Gerwig said to me. Greta okay. Gerwig felt very like, this is a big studio movie. Whereas Jillian Armstrong, sorry, I'm like so nerdy about this, but no, please. Reading interviews with them, you know, with Greta, it was very much like she was hired to write this script and it was with a big studio versus Jillian Armstrong, where she was also hired to direct the film, but she didn't want to. She was like, this is too close to my brilliant career. I don't want to repeat myself. And Greta, on the other hand, was like, I love this book from my childhood. This is so important to me. And I'm going to re sort of give a different take on it. And I thought that was really interesting because Jillian, to me, the story feels in her hands, it feels more like about survival. Whereas with Greta, it feels more about this longing for childhood and things that we can't hold on to. It's just fascinating how each director kind of pulls different threads out of it because it's such an expansive, long, but just, but a book of great depth as well. You can kind of hold it up like a prism and different colors will come shooting out of it. Exactly. So I'm very glad to have that insight because I do not make movies. I I took a film class in high school and (laughs) made a documentary about a local hockey team, but that's about the extent of my... (laughs) No, honestly, that's how people start you know, it's not too late for you. Thank you. Thank you, Cameron. I don't know. I will set that aside for now and simply ask you, you talked about how you were sort of introduced to this by seeing people say, oh, I'm such a Meg, I'm an Amy. So do you have a sense now of which March sister you are? And keep in mind, Lori is a March sister. Oh man, I feel, I want to say Lori, only because he like, clearly wants to be part of this group, is lonely, and then joins, you know what I mean? And then joins yeah. me reading the book and sort of idealizing this life is like Lori idealizing the March sisters. And I also would be like, this is not my interpretation of the text, but I also would just start randomly proposing to them out of order, whatever. I would also just be like, I want to marry into this family. Which one of us is going to get married? But yeah, I think him... I don't know. I always associate Lori with sort of being like lonely. And I think I really relate to that. I love that. And I always say Lori is a March sister and then no one ever claims Lori. So I'm very glad that you did. I said, I'm going to be different. I am special. (laughs) And I love that part of the reason is that all of the March sisters are wife material. I think things are controversial with some sisters, but I live in an alternate universe. Yeah. (laughs) Do you know that drill tweet where he says, I'm going to start saying wife city whenever I see an attractive woman, like yeah. that's wife city or that girl is wife city to me. That's Lori walking into Literally. It's literally. <laughs> okay. So we are nearing the end of the first part of Little Women. And today we are on chapter 22, which is the penultimate chapter of part one. So Cameron, do you want to just recap for us real quick what happens in chapter yeah. 22? Pleasant Meadows. It's so it's basically like Christmas again, which I think is appropriate for what's when we're recording. I wrote notes, but Beth gets better. They have this really lovely Christmas and everyone got nice gifts, smiley face. (laughs) Their father comes back. I think that's the big part. Their father comes back and he's like, wow, you guys are all so different. And it's just like this very warm chapter. Yeah, no, this is a famous chapter. It's a moment that gets dramatized in every movie when the dad comes home and everyone rushes to the door. 
And Beth, who's been, it's said that she's recovering still from her illness and Joe is actually carrying her around the house. But when the dad comes through the door, Beth yeah, summons the strength to run across the, yeah, run into his arms. Feels very Christmas miracle sort of thing. Yeah. And it's, there is one more chapter after this, but this is kind of the chapter that brings the book full circle from that first Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents. It's even a little funny that the book begins in the days before Christmas and it ends in the days after Christmas. It's not a perfectly neat circle, which I feel like is kind of acknowledging the way that life moves sometimes, that there are all these important moments around the holidays as well. Yeah. I think it's also interesting because it shows. Obviously, the father is a way to show growth of the characters, mm-hmm. but I think sort of ending around a similar time as where we started also echoes that beginning. And especially yeah. the fact that they actually have presents this time versus before where they were like, oh, no, like, we don't have any presents. It's like a real quote unquote Christmas. Yeah, yeah. For me, having seen the movie, but it's so nice. I'm sort of like, oh, this bad thing's about to happen. <laughs> Yeah, and it's interesting too. I, I don't know that it's explicitly stated that, you know, the war is over, but this book is ending on a note of healing, a note of Mr. March returning from the war. Like, as you said, there's presents at Christmas. Joe and Lori drop this extremely elaborate snow maiden, like a snow woman, snowman woman with arms full of presents for Beth. They really go all out. There's just a lot of joy in the room. There are more people in the house because Lori's family, his grandfather and John Brooke all come over. Meg and John Brooke is getting real, like through March and Marmy are trading looks about, <laughs> about that. Yeah. I was like, marriage? Question mark, question mark. <laughs> but yeah, it feels very, and I also, sorry to keep bringing up the movies, but no, oh, please. It reminds me of Greta Gerwig's version specifically and how she would light the scenes differently. The first scene without, I don't remember how she did it. But like mm-hmm. to me, the scene feels very warm and, you know, orange or whatever. And then maybe the earlier scenes are a little bluer, grayer. It feels very together, what you would imagine, I think, Christmas to be. Yeah, absolutely. I'm reminded of there's a line in Lady Bird where the nun says, oh, you really love Sacramento. And Lady Bird says, well, I guess I pay attention. And the nun says, isn't that the same thing, love and attention? And I'm reminded of that thinking about the moment that scene in the movie where it's Christmas, everyone's together. And we see Beth sitting on the couch with some sewing and we follow Beth's eyes around the room, like, you know, the camera lingering on all the people that she loves, you know, which is the same thing. She's paying attention to the people that she loves. And this is how we just know by following her eyes around the room that she loves these people and there's all this love in the room. And I think that's very palpable as well in this book, in this chapter rather, there's an aside about how the invalids have to rest, right? Because Mr. March has just come a long way and Beth is still, you know, she's been disabled by her illness. Mm-hmm. And so both of them go sit together in one chair <laughs> to rest. It's just such a nice image of you can see Beth gathered up on on her dad's yeah. knee. So I don't know how we want to tackle this. Do we want to just go through an important thing that happens here is that dad comes home and then he kind of gives an assessment of each March sister. He's like, Amy, you're not as selfish. And Beth, you're not as shy. And Joe is more feminine, which I thought was interesting. After like Joe literally carrying Beth around. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting. And then he says Meg is like not vain anymore or not so vain, which is also funny. It's like subtle drags. (laughs) He's like, all you reprobates, I'm glad that you're Literally, he's like, I'm so glad 
you guys changed while I was gone. <laughs> yeah. You know, Little Women kind of fluctuates between being this incredibly radical text and an incredibly moralistic one. <laughs> yeah. And this one, it lands more on the side of moralistic. It literally ends with Beth singing a hymn. It's a moment of really explicit religiosity. Yeah. Just on top of this being Christmas, right? Yeah. They're nods to Pilgrim's Progress, of course, yeah. which brings us back to the beginning. But yeah, it, it winds up being very moral and not always in ways that I appreciate. So I'm pulling up the notes that I took on my read of the annotated edition by John Madison. And this was a year and a half ago. So I don't always remember the comments that I made, but I, <laughs> I'm just going to, I'm just going to read the comments that I made. So this is when Mr. March is saying, in spite of the curly crop, I don't see the sun, Joe. And I left a comment that just said, boo. <laughs> It's just so, and I also think this is why I had trouble getting into the book when I was younger, because it is very, not all the time, but sometimes it does feel like a text from Sunday school or something. Dad, chill. Dad, you dark God here. Come on. No, I, and it's so funny that you say Sunday school because this was actually banned from Sunday school libraries in its day. That's so wild. I know. It just, so it seems to us incredibly pat and moral was radical at the time, though not for this passage. It was the Christmas play passage at the beginning where, you know, they're putting on a play full of witchcraft and murder and Joe is in drag singing love songs to women. (laughs) I guess, I guess. Yeah, sure. And it's, I mean, like you compare that scene to this one, it's night and day, really. There's no witchcraft. There's zero murder. It's a very pastoral domestic scene that's happening here. A lot of this, I think there are a couple of kind of gender bits that we can dwell on, but I want to go sister by sister. Do you want to start with Meg? Because this is kind of a big chapter for Meg. It's really, we're no longer sort of hinting that Meg and John Brooke is going to happen. It's going to happen. It's in the process of happening. Marmy and Mr. March are sort of making peace with that. I wonder if you have any thoughts about Meg's journey up to this point. I think it's really interesting Okay. <laughs> I'm going to send like one of those people on Twitter who's always talking about like eldest sister burdens or whatever. But I do find it really yeah. interesting that the father says you're not as vain. Because I find, especially in books like this, like for children and classics, there's this expectation or this trope that the oldest sister is, you know, selfless and is always taking care of the younger ones. And I feel like yeah. even in the movie that's presented that way, I didn't read her as vain. I read her as someone who has a lot of responsibilities and like, tries to find like outlet, you know, wants to have nice things at times and can't. But it almost makes me sad to know that she, I mean, I don't know. Are we watching spoil? Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> to know. I mean, just she gets like a silk dress in this chapter, right? Yes. And it's from, from Lori's grandpa. Actually. Yeah. And it's like this big deal. And I just think of when she goes to that ball and Lori sort of scolds her for being vain or whatever. Lori, God. That to me, I feel like every time she finds joy, there's a damper put on it. Yeah. And like, someone's admonishing her for finding joy in, you know, material things or her looks or whatever. And I'm just like, let her live, let her, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really important point. And we did a great episode on this with Jaya Saxena, the chapter Meg Goes to Vanity Fair, which is all about Meg goes to a ball and learns to never want anything again. Yeah, no, <laughs> and 
yeah i'm trying to like not be annoying because i'm also an older sister <laughs> i don't have a bunch of younger siblings but it, it does feel very much like she's i mean obviously they're all being molded into this idea of femininity and like what a woman is I mean, a woman uh-huh. has to give up and go through but it feels specific with her i find it interesting that she still tries to do things that will make her happy despite seeing with people constantly like telling her not to yeah, I think that's a good point. In the Meg Goes to Vanity Fair chapter, I think the misogyny kind of leapt out and it's less pernicious here, but it kind of is. He's still saying, you're such a good housewife yeah, and right. I value the womanly skill, which keeps home happy. Yeah. <laughs> so Meg gives this speech to Joe about how in the Greta Gerwig show on the belt, just because my dreams are different from yours doesn't mean they're unimportant. And it really was no small thing to raise children in this era, right? To give birth for one, like imagine being pregnant in the 1860s, first of all, couldn't be me, but <laughs> I'm just struck by how, again, the value of the womanly skill. And I wanted to ask you also, there's some something interesting that happens here that is referred to a few times. I'm just going to read the excerpts. Meg cheerfully blackened and burned her white hands. Okay, so there's that one. And then later on, he says, I value the womanly skill which keeps home happy more than white hands. I remember a time when this hand was white and smooth and your first care was to keep it so. And it's sort of, he's congratulating her for no longer having these white hands. And so I, yeah. (laughs) how do you read that? It's really interesting to me. They have the worker, right? They have the, is her name Henrietta? Hannah. 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 She's Irish. I know. That's okay. But I always find it interesting because it is set during the Civil War and it's hard not to talk about race in that context. And both adaptations address it so weirdly. (laughs) And I really thought it's interesting because obviously like the marches are quote unquote woke and they're very Christian and, you know, and the father is obviously out fighting. But then it's very interesting that I know what he means. He's saying, you know, your hands are getting darker because you're doing work, because you're not just sitting around doing nothing. But I also am thinking like equating blackness to labor. Yeah. So <laughs> whiteness to leisure and blackness to yeah. work. Yeah. And it's so interesting. And also it makes me think about Hannah. And Mm -hmm. how she's Irish and how, you know, she's not a person of color, but obviously like Irish people have this different social standing. But Hannah messes something up, right? She she comes into the room still holding the turkey and she's sobbing and still holding the turkey. (laughs) She, yes, she's crying over the turkey. She forgot to leave in the kitchen. (laughs) But I think it's interesting how she's used as comic relief, as this sort of moralistic, she's this Irish character and she's given the laughs while, you know, the father, the March family are given uh-huh. these very serious. Beth gets to sing the hymn. The father gets to say, you've all grown so well. And yeah, Lori's uncle, last father. <laughs> Grandfather. <laughs> yes. So like yeah. give these gifts. And so they all get to do these sort of big, important things. And then Hannah is crying over the turkey. Yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting point. You mentioned she is Irish. She's not. A person of color by today's standards, but at the time, anti-Irish sentiment, it was very prevalent Mm -hmm. in the United States at that point. This was the era of no Irish need apply for this job. And we've talked about in the past how when 
Hannah talks in the book, Alcott boulderizes her speech and kind of gives her a written mm-hmm. accent. I think you're pointing to something very real and uncomfortable in the book with regard to Hannah and with the equation of people of the non-white Anglo-Saxon Protestant caste are associated with labor and humor and comic relief. It, what's interesting to me is that Meg cheerfully blackens and burns her white hand. And Mr. March is like, I'm glad your hands aren't white anymore. So it, it's not like a wholly negative thing, but it is. It, yeah. It, like, I don't think he's saying it as an um, insult, but I do think just the idea of equating blackness with labor is just interesting. Yeah. I was just thinking, I looked up, Uncle Tom's Cabin came out. Oh, did it ever? <laughs> and then Little Women came out in 1868, or the first volume did. So I'm wondering, did the author read this? How much of that influence? Because I think Uncle Tom's Cabin is sort of, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but it sort of reminds me of that because it is an anti-slavery novel and it is setting out to do good. But then there are these little things, not little, but there are these things that make you go, Harriet, what do you mean? And I think it's the same here where there are things that are said or not said. And I'm like, what do you mean? So I can answer your question. Yes, Alcott did read Uncle Tom's Cabin. We know this because May Alcott, who was Alcott's younger sister, the inspiration for Amy, wrote about this in her diary when she was 12. And I took down that exact, this was a diary entry from 1852. She writes, Louisa read and finished Uncle Tom's Cabin. I think it is true what she says about that. And then she spells slaves, S-A-L-E-V-E-S, and then crosses it out and writes slabs. <laughs> and then you can see someone in ink has gone in and added an E. <laughs> so, so we, yes, that was, their mother would read their journal entries and leave notes for them. And so like, they were going in and being like, nice try, <laughs> but it's slaves. Like not the slabs. Not the slums, no. That's coming in. Yeah, not yet. (laughs) Not yet, no. So yeah, Little Women did not come out during the Civil War. It very much came out afterward. This would have been before slash during. And it's interesting that Lou Alcott took the time to read Uncle Tom's Cabin to May and to impress upon her. And obviously, it was a major abolitionist work at the time. And there are so many problems with it, but I haven't read Uncle Tom's Cabin. I'll admit that. I think just because it's always been presented to me as a problematic book. <laughs> so I think for that reason, I've never taken the plunge, but I think it can be useful and healthy to read quote unquote problematic books, especially if they're major historical import. No. And I think yeah. I've only read excerpts. <laughs> I don't really want to read the whole thing, <laughs> but it, I do think it's really interesting. This is sort of slightly off topic, but we... At least for me, I know we were taught sort of abolitionists were good and the slave owners were bad. And there was no sort of gray area or in between. And I didn't learn until I was older and in college, like studying by myself, that a lot of abolitionists, you know, we were presented in school or public school that abolitionists believe Black people were equal and Black people should have the same rights, blah, blah, blah. That's what was implied. And that wasn't the case for many abolitionists. Just because no. they thought that we shouldn't have slavery anymore didn't mean that they saw Black people as equal. And I yeah. think Uncle Tom's Cabin is a great sort of example of that. And I also think provides a lot of context as to what the thoughts were of people who were anti-slavery. Yeah. And you know what's also interesting? I guess it was one of the most popular texts available. And it's interesting that 
Alcott was 19 at the time that she read it to May, who was 12. It's a kind of a way to like teach her about what was going on and teach her empathy, right? And the Alcotts, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but they were abolitionists. They actually housed people escaping from slavery as a stop on the Underground Railroad. They were very involved. But what's interesting to me is none of that really makes it into Little Women. We don't get a moment where Joe reads Uncle Tom's Cabin to Amy, for instance. I find it interesting not to, I'm going to keep bringing up some reasons, all right? Yeah, yeah. Because the Greta Gerwig one is most recent, I and I remember the press tour, and I just remember her saying, you know, how the way she reframed the book or the story was by taking inspiration directly from Lou's life and yeah, injecting that into the story. And I found it so interesting that part of the history wasn't included, you know? And I remember, maybe I'm making this up, but I did feel like she said we are going to address Black people. And maybe she didn't say that explicitly, but she was like, we're going to have more of that because it's important. And I'm thinking, oh, because I read Wikipedia and read yeah. the backstory of this family. I'm thinking, oh, maybe this will be added. That'll be an interesting layer. And it wasn't. I mean, we were talking about before about children's writers and a lot of them writing for money or not having money. And that's why they need to depend on this. They think a lot about, like for me, I get easily irritated by books a lot, by content or whatever. And I feel like with another book, I might have gotten irritated by what I felt was really moralistic about this chapter specifically. But for me, I always think about Lou, and I don't know as much as you do, but I always think about this person trying to provide for their family and sort of being constrained by what could be published and not just be published, but what would sell. And I, so I I don't necessarily think, oh, like this is what they wanted or this is what they totally believed. I'm thinking they were sort Mm -hmm. of trying to navigate that. Yeah. We know that there are certain things that Alcott just wasn't allowed to include in the book Mm -hmm. or when the Sunday school library ban came down, which we've talked about, like her editor was like, okay, can you replace the Christmas play with anything? Yeah. And Alka was like, no, I won't do that. But yeah. it, <laughs> And it didn't impede the book's commercial chances. I don't know to what extent it's present, but at the end of Little Women, Joe opens a school and one of the students she admits is a biracial student. So I don't know whether that character becomes prominent in Little Men or Joe's Boys, but it's right there at the end. It's kind of like, okay, you made it through the book. I can put it here. And I did want to go through sister by sister, and I don't want to take up too much more of your time, Cameron, but <laughs> my kind of rock in a hard place thing is I would not trade Timothy Chalamet as Laurie for anything, right? And you, we're on the same page here. Definitely. <laughs> I was nodding vigorously. <laughs> yes. But at the same time, and we know, and we've talked about on the show before, Laurie is described as having dark brown skin, curly black hair, and big black eyes. There's this, a lot in the in the story about how his mother was Italian and mm. his grandpa really doesn't want him to be like his Italian mother. And at this time, this was when the Boston Brahmins were really gearing up to actually, you know, enforce rules against Italian immigration. So there is a lot of racial context around Lori that's very specific to the time period that just gets completely lost. Mm. Initially in the 1930s and kind of the first film adaptations, it's not there because anti-Italian sentiment yeah, yeah, still yeah. existed, right? <laughs> So Laurie is just blonde and blue-eyed. But, you know, by the time we get to the 90s or Greta Gerwig, it's not there because, like, we just have no context for it. Yeah. Right? And I keep thinking, again, I love Timothy in that role, but, like, I think it would have been such an interesting opportunity to introduce a biracial Black actor mm-hmm. and actually portray Laurie as having dark brown skin and curly Black hair. I, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I think it's so interesting because I do think it would be interesting, but I don't know if Gerwig would have been equipped to 
the split. Mm. Yeah. Because I also think she has a very specific context for the story. And I don't think it's bad. I think that's her take on it. Because I feel like that would impact a lot of the story. Not even she would have to rewrite it, but just different interactions would be framed differently. And I don't know if she would want that. Yeah. And I find it really interesting because I also am constantly thinking about that. And Lori also being how I always think of Lori being really lonely and like wanting to be part of this group as a well, he's an outsider and wants to be accepted as part of all the normal people, quote unquote. Yeah. And yeah, it makes me sad. I do think it would be interesting, but I feel like a lot of times what we see now in adaptations is that a character is just suddenly a POC and then we don't, nothing right, yeah. is dealt with. And I think that's, it was included by the author for a reason, you know? Yeah. And I yeah. think because it hasn't, like you said, like it hasn't been included in so many adaptations. If someone were to do it, people would be like, oh, this is like a woke move or whatever. And <laughs> it wouldn't be like a scene as a, as an interpretation of the text. And yeah. that's what's frustrating. It is frustrating. I think as we're talking through, I can see like how a lot of the story would kind of have to fundamentally change. If Lori were a biracial Black person in this era, then the marriage to Joe is no longer mm-hmm. wham bang obvious, right? For instance, just mm-hmm. I, I don't even know if it would be legal. Yeah, at the time. And I think so, for example, so let's say Greta were to Greta, my personal friend Greta, <laughs> were to do. She, she did her big argument scene where Lori proposes. Yeah. And it's great. But first of all, a white girl and a black man alone is like, whoa, I don't know how that looks. Mm-hmm. And I also, I feel like there would be Joe's words in those scene would come across maybe a little more cruelly. Yeah. If she's like, absolutely not. No, but I, as a black person would be like, did race have to do that? Is she like trying to protect him from this life that she thinks would be very difficult for the two of them? Mm-hmm. I think there's just so many other angles that would be added right. that are, are interesting. And then, you know, when Amy ends up with him and they have their kid, what's their kid's name? Beth? 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 I think no, so. Beth, yeah. Beth. I said Barry. Barry <laughs> yeah, of course. Barry Mark. Let me it's not Beth. It's I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up for you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's Elizabeth Beth Lawrence. Yes, best, best. When they have best, that's also really interesting. And I think they mentioned best sort of takes after Amy. And that's also super interesting to me. Yeah. I, all that's interesting to me. And I also wonder like how, because right in this chapter, Lori's there uh-huh. and his family's there or, you know, his yeah. member and John Brooks there. And I think that contrast, right? I feel like he'd be much more of a foil if yeah. he's this white suitor for Meg. And then you have Lori, who is rich, but if he's half black, you know, it's also, and for him to be the only black person, there's just so many things. Yeah. I think it would be really interesting if someone were to do it. I just, I do think it would, yeah, it would definitely, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. There's a lot to think through for sure, especially since I, and I don't want to get too off topic of the chapter here, but we've talked before about how Lori's kind of desperation to marry into the March family could be read as desperation to marry white, right? And to mm-hmm. whiten himself by marriage into this family, right? And in that, like, in the Greta Gerwig movie, Amy gives this whole talk. She's like, marriage is an economic proposition yes. to me. I don't expect mm-hmm. you to understand that. And it's like, okay, well, 
His dad got disowned for marrying an Italian woman. So I think, I think Lori knows what what I'm saying where it's, and I find it really interesting because like you said, it's such a rich text to, I don't know if this is like blasphemy, but it kind of reminds me like Shakespeare. When people stage a Shakespeare play, there's so much that you can dig into. You can make King Lear about a prison or you can make it. People have their own takes on it. And there are some things they just don't pay attention to the same way. And I think it's sort of the same with Gerwig's version where it's like, she doesn't really acknowledge that part of Lori. She, you know, shows him sort of all alone and he's lonely and all of this. But we don't really, I don't remember the backstory about his mother in the film. Yeah, It's not really empathized. And I think it would be so interesting, especially when Meg, I'm sorry, like jumping ahead, but when Meg gets married and she's sort of, dealing with her motherhood to have him there. But yeah, <laughs> sorry. I'm like big brain right now. No, I'm like, yeah, impact everything. Huge brain. And it's, this is such a rich text because we've just had that whole conversation based on a single line about how Meg cheerfully blackened her hands. I know, but it's so <laughs> interesting. And it also makes me think of, this is so, this is so dumb, but like it also makes me think of like white people tanning themselves, which I know not what is even about it, but I'm just thinking of Meg spraying a spray on tan like happily. Meg definitely spray tans in the modern era. Like, I have such a clear picture of Meg in the modern era. In my head, she's a huge Megan the Stallion fan because this is an artist whose entire oeuvre is about being a hot girl named Meg. And she's like, yes. Like, so right. Like I'm, I'm a hottie, hot girl summer, and everyone is like, oh my god, Meg. <laughs> She's like, I'm never shutting up about this. I am. She buys the concert tickets. She has all of the albums. She <laughs> will never stop ever. Okay, well, on, on that note, and I don't want to like keep you here all day, but do we want to just run through real quick the other siblings in the room? Yeah, we talked about Joe, right? Yeah, we talked about Joe. It's just, it's a bummer. My comment on the paragraph was like, I don't see the son Joe who I left a year ago. I'm like, ugh. The one thing I want to highlight here is, he says, I don't know whether the shearing sobered our black sheep, which is, he's talking about the haircut there. So I don't know, did the haircut make her a woman? Was giving up her one beauty the thing that made her realize that womanhood was worth something after all what happened there what does i find like so okay this is maybe wishful thinking but i read that line sort of in jest he's joking oh, yeah. because for me and i know i'm like looking for through at it from modern lens but we think short hair is more masculine oh, yeah. and so for me i'm picturing joe short hair just finished carrying sister around <laughs> and Probably his muscles, whatever. Dad's like, LOL, you're so ladylike. It just feels like a joke to me. And that's, again, why I find it so interesting because you can sort of project whatever you like onto yeah. it. Yeah, it is interesting. So so you see it as, well, I don't see the sun, John. Like, your Joe is with the short hair. Falling. That's what I'm saying. Like, it feels like a joke to me. I But also, I'm not an expert, but it felt like a joke. But then also, it would be kind of... Can I curse? Well, it, yeah. it would be kind of bad if, or kind of mean if he were to like sort of be joking with Joe and then be like, you're not vain anymore to Meg. That's so mean. <laughs> and no. what does he say to everyone else? He says, you're not as shy. And he says, Amy, you're less selfish, which is so funny. Like he really dragged them. But I feel like there's a sort of tender way that parents can do that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so what, even though when I am reading it, I'm like, oh, that's kind of harsh. I do feel like 
he, and maybe this is all said with like endearment. It probably is. Yeah. No, he obviously loves his children, but I don't like his compliment to Joe. And I'll tell you why. The last episode we did was chapter 21, which is the one where Lori contemplates running away from home. And Mm -hmm. Joe says, I would do it if I were a boy, but I'm a miserable girl. And I just have Mm -hmm. to, I just have to make my peace with that. It's not, Joe really thinks about running away. She says to Grandpa Lawrence later on, you know, if we do run away, you know, we'll go to India and you can advertise for two boys. (laughs) But there's an understanding of, I would have so many adventures if I were a boy, but as I'm a miserable girl, I have to stay here and I have to make my peace with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that is coloring. I don't see the son, Joe. I see a young lady who pins her collar straight, laces her boots neatly, and neither whistles, talks lank, nor lies on the rug as she used to. But then listen to the follow-up. Her face is rather thin and pale just now with watching and anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't bounce, but moves quietly. It's, yeah. And it's a little bit like, I, th- I think Joe has lost some of her Jonas. I think that's what, that's what yeah. I'm doing. And she's not happy about it. It's not entirely a happy thing. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that reading. And I, it's interesting because there's a lot of ways people read Joe's desire to be yeah. a boy. You know, some people are like, this means Joe just wants the rights that a boy would have during this time. And then some other people are like, no, this is a deeper thing about Joe's gender. And I think I, for me, the paleness and Joe has lost some of who they are is what makes me lean towards it being more about Joe's gender. Just because I feel like there are so many, yes, Joe is constrained by like society, but Joe sort of does what she wants. She does the plays and makes uh-huh. her sisters do the plays. She cuts off her hair and regrets it and writes all the time. And for the time is doing a lot of cool stuff. And I feel like if, you know, she, I mean, Amy goes to Paris. They, I feel like if this were about wanting to do more things, Joe could find a way to do it. Whereas the actual just sadness or like ashen face sort of thing yeah. feels more like you are feeling discomfort about this very state of you. Yeah. And that makes me sad. Uh, as she's conforming and being more of a young lady, she's depleted of energy and color. And yeah. it's just, it's, it's a bummer. It's a real bummer. And that, I mean, I don't know if that's the note we want to end on. I have a couple more Joe things to do just real quick. Yeah. When Mr. March walks in the door, Joe disgraces herself by nearly fainting away and has to be doctored by Lori in the China closet. Vibes. Vibes. And then I also think not to be annoying, but also like the gender implications of that is really interesting. Lori being the nurse and Yes. Doctored by Lori. Yeah. And it's, yeah, Joe disgraces herself by fainting away. We know that Joe thinks any show of emotion is unmanful. So that's, yeah. <laughs> and then there's a meaningful look passes between Marmy and Mr. March regarding mm-hmm. John Brooke and Meg. And Joe saw and understood the look and she stalked grimly away to get wine and beef tea, muttering to herself as she slammed the door. I hate estimable young men with brown eyes. <laughs> yeah. And I think Again, that's so, I know, I remember at the end, but I think that's so interesting too, because Gerwig obviously read that as, oh, like, I don't want to grow up. Mm -hmm. I don't want any of us to get married. This, you know, it could read as jealousy, like Joe wants Mm -hmm. to be like John Brooke, or it could read as Joe has these feelings for Lori and can't act on them. Because estimable young men with brown eyes is a group that includes Lori. 
Yes. <laughs> I have never, you said something there. I have never thought about Joe wanting to be like John Brooke. Now that you say it, it's like, duh, he's this scholar. He exactly. gets to go to the war and be the escort. He gets to see the battle. There's a, a hilarious aside in the last chapter where Joe is having these fantasies about how fun it'll be in the camps and the hospitals. I'm like, Joe, I don't... I- no, no, but it's also interesting because yeah. Joe, and you know, Joe's like, I don't want to be with Lori in that way. But if Joe were John, she could be Lori's tutor and sort of companion in that way without it being romantic. But yeah. she could share this knowledge with and these creative pursuits that she loves so much, but obviously isn't able to go deal with in the same way. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I think that's so true. And it's ultimately what Joe and Lori's relationship winds up being is, yeah, we live in the same educational campus and we put on plays together and we do all these creative projects. So I, yeah, I think she winds up there, but of course she wants to be like John Brooke. Maybe, maybe some of that is getting to go and have adventures or have intimate comradeship with other boys or get to go be near the action of the Civil War. But it, yeah, she definitely. Maybe some of it is like wanting to marry a woman and be a patriarch, right? It's There's so much there. So we had better wrap up, although I'm sure we could talk all day long. Where can people buy your books? And I mean, do you want to give us a little rundown of Friday I'm in Love? Because it's just out. So the book is about a girl who didn't get the chance to have a sweet 16. And she decides she's going to have this very fancy coming out party where she announces that she's gay. But along the way, she has a lot of money troubles. And is also tied up in some drama surrounding a new student at her school who she has a crush on. And you can buy the book, I think, anywhere that you can buy a book. <laughs> That's it's so weird. Sorry. You can buy it at any bookstore. It'll be at Barnes & Noble, Target, all of those things. And I recommend highly that you order it from your local independent bookstore. Yes. First of all, I know there's been Barnes and Noble drama, so I'm very excited to hear that it will be at Barnes and Noble. And it has, it will be, yes. Yeah. It has the most beautiful cover. Your protagonist, she's on the cover in this ruffled tiered dress that's fanning out, yes. and every tier is a color of the rainbow. It's just, it's fabulous. I love it. I'm really excited. Yeah. Well, so congratulations on the book, Cameron, and Thank everyone you. go by Friday. I'm in love. As always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever books are sold. And you can also, it would mean a lot to me and to the pod if you could go on and leave us a rating and a review, because as I mentioned up top, we were covered in Fox News and a whole bunch of conservative outlets. There was a Fox News article, like I said, literally the headline, podcaster mocked. So thankfully, it seems like the full extent of that is one person left a one-star rating and I can deal with that. But if you do, enjoy the podcast, you know, tell your friends, leave a rating. It means a lot and it'll help us grow. All right. So again, thank you so much, Cameron, for being here. It was lovely. And <laughs> I'm so glad we could finally do this because like last year, I think I was like, do you want to come on the or earlier? I this know. Year? And I can push it back. I'm yeah. sorry. It was so fun. Well, thank you again for coming and go take a nap now because you've earned it. Thank you. <laughs> All right.